Alright, so this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verses 1. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, Last week, um, we went through the first 11 verses of Philippians. Um, We discussed, uh, in large part, that Paul's reason to continue his ministry was his love for the church. Um, He desired to do several things. He desired to see people grow in their maturity and their holiness, um, for them to put to death the flesh, and for them to place their confidence in Christ and not anything else. Um, He explained to them that he had more reason than anyone to put his confidence in his credentials and in his achievements in his flesh. But when he had discovered Christ, all of that was meaningless. He, He called it rubbish. He called it dung. And then he said that he had desired to gain Christ. That he not only desired to gain Christ, but he desired to be found in him and to have a righteousness that was from God, not from himself. The last three verses in last week's lesson, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, say, Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would somebody please read um, verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3. Verses 12 through 14. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, So verse 12 says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. So that this there is salvation in its fullness. In verse 11, at the very end it says, That I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So as many of you know, you have this idea with salvation, this concept of already and not yet. I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. I am saved is your conversion. I am being saved is your sanctification. I will be saved is our resurrection. So our salvation has begun. Our salvation is being done, but it's not yet complete. Paul is just simply trying to tell them that he is in this same struggle that they're in, but he's encouraging them to press on. Paul had no more of the Holy Spirit than you or I do. He was not impervious to sin or struggle. Paul himself called himself the chief of sinners. He simply is encouraging them to exercise their faith with zeal. The same zeal that he had mentioned that he had as a Pharisee as to the law. He's simply encouraging them to be intentional. Then he says in that verse, Nor am I already perfect. He's simply telling us that I have not been perfected, not yet. Through good works we can never attain perfection. 
In our confession, chapter 16, section 4, when summarizing the, some passages in Job, Galatians, and Luke, the confession says, "...those who attain the greatest heights of obedience possible in this life are far from being able to merit reward by going beyond duty or to do more than God requires." Instead, they fall short of much that is their duty to do. Perfection happens at the end, the resurrection from the dead, Paul says. At the end, salvation will be complete. We will be changed, we'll be given new bodies, he says, that are unable to sin. But that hasn't happened yet. Look back at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. But I press on to make it my own. Press on. This intentionality, this determined mentality. If you remember last week, I read you that that expanded version of verses 10 and 11. It said, for my determined purpose is that I may know Him. To be intentional, to be determined to know Christ. If somebody would look up Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19. Can someone flip there real quick? Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 19. Would you read that for me? For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you, grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So simply again, this idea to press on, to be determined to know Christ more fully and more deeply, to work hard, to sacrifice to dig deep into Scripture, to seek wisdom and apply it to your life. So the question would be, why press on? And verse 11 tells us, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Or verse 12, I'm sorry. So for what purpose did Christ redeem us? For what purpose did Christ redeem us? Anybody know... Catechism question one that the children are studying right now and its answer. Glorify Christ and enjoy Him forever. Yeah. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So how do we glorify God? Whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we do, we do it all the glory of God. Yes. Yes. Does anybody know catechism question two? And its answer. Go ahead, Hudson. You know it? No? <laughs> what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. So that tells us how, but how do we do it? By doing the work that He redeemed us to do in His Word by enjoying Him through His Word and through His creation. So what is that work revealed in the Bible? Everything we eat, say, and do? Yes. Anything else? 
what is that work revealed in the scriptures that he's called us to do? When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the summary of all of the law and the prophets was in two things, loving God and loving our neighbor. I was also thinking about the Great Commission, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. I was thinking about the cultural mandate, redeeming culture for Christ, opposing government rule, opposing abortion, opposing anything other than heterosexual and monogamous marriage and all that goes along with that. Raising godly families. Deuteronomy 6. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk or, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So we're to always be teaching and living out God's word to those in our families and our spheres of influence. Are there any other additions, comments, questions on these first two verses? Okay, let's look at verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14, would somebody please read verses 13 and 14? Thank you. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. The one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind, Paul says. In Luke 9, verse 62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So if you remember, Paul counted everything in his past life as rubbish. Everything that he had accomplished up to the point of receiving Christ as dung. And reminiscing on his past and reminiscing on our past is no profit in the pursuit of Christ. Paul is simply saying, I'm not yet perfected. I've not yet attained the resurrection from the dead. But do you want to know what I do do? And he tells us, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Would somebody please flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and read that for me, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. And then if somebody else would look up 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 10, and I'll call on you in a moment to read that. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable what wreath, but we have an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, so what does it look like to strain forward, to press on toward the goal, as Paul is telling us? What does that look like? We have lots of athletes in the room. What does straining forward, what does pressing on look like? Shelly? Heather? <laughs> Maggie? Addie? Noah? Nathan? 
It's the ones I thought of. What does it look like to strain forward? That old phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And this is all, this idea of straining forward, this idea of pressing on, is all in the midst of struggle. It's precise, intentional effort. Straining muscles, clear focus, complete dedication, as we're describing, to the event. Everything points to that. So Paul is just simply telling us, in our life, we must exercise that kind of dedication and focus. But not on an event, not on a race, but to gain a deeper understanding and intimacy with God through His Word and through prayer. First uh, Timothy 4, 7-10. through 10. Somebody read that. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So what happens if you don't train? You flub race day. It's a huge flop. Is training easy? As Adam said, ordering every single part of your life towards one goal, does that sound easy? Is it easy to decide to skip today's training? Does the frequency and or the intensity of the training matter? Yes. This idea of pressing on, of pursuing in godliness is the value is a value, Paul says, in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Training in godliness is very time consuming work. But Paul says in First Timothy, it's never in vain. Never. It is valuable in every part of your life. So how are you training towards godliness? Any comments or questions? Christ's sufferings, and that's what he's 
uh, stranded horses, he can attain the resurrection of the dead. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was asking the three disciples to, to bear his suffering with him, to pray for him, to watch with him. And they were unable to because they were unable to strain against their own bodily sleepiness. And yeah. And fear. So would that be like an example? Yes. That's a very good example. Thank you, Jordan. All right, somebody would read verses 15 and 16 for us in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. So those who are mature think this way. So those who are mature are those who think and act the way that Paul just sent several, spent several verses describing for us. Those who are straining forward in godliness are the mature. Those who have what we've described several times here in our time here is this upward spiral of repentance and growth and godliness. And he says, if, anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Deep intentional study of the Word of God will continually reveal sin in your life. In every part of your life, it'll it'll open you up. That double-edged sword of God's Word will sharply and meticulously cut sin and disobedience from your life if you open yourself up to and allow God's Word to be applied to you by the work of the Holy Spirit. This idea again of slow, painful death to self that I've said over and over again. The Word of God carving out those things from us that we should not hold on to. Verse 16, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So as believers, we're held accountable to obedience to the Word of God. As our accountability increases, as our knowledge increases. And all of us in here understand that. We're all either siblings or parents or grandparents. Was there a difference in punishment when you did something wrong knowingly versus when you didn't know it was wrong? Well, sure. It's much more severe if you knew it was wrong, but you did it anyway. It's the same thing. It's more severe because we're held to a higher account because of the knowledge, is what Paul says, we have attained. God's expectations are for the same as parents and children to us. When we learn, we should obey. This idea of that Patrick's mentioned before, this, this idea of first-time cheerful obedience. God expects this of us when we are confronted with His Word. And anything less is disobedience. If you remember several months ago, and and several times in several of his lessons, John had this question um, summarized. I don't know if this is exactly how he worded it, but how many of you, when confronted with a new truth and the Word of God, will allow it to do its work in your life and change you? 
when confronted with these hard truths in Scripture, what is the attitude or the response of many Christians today when they're confronted with God's Word? Not rhetorical. I'll obey when it's convenient. It's kind of the mentality a lot have. I don't want to do that, so I won't. Scripture really doesn't address this issue specifically. How many times I've heard that? It's outdated. It's irrelevant. So, do you resist the hard truths in Scripture? Do you delay in obedience? Do you, be, do you debate with the Word of God and what it means? Or do we submit and repent when confronted with the Word? Any comments or questions? Joe? He is confronting you with it. Those are the, those are the only two options, obedience or disobedience. He's saying God will reveal that also to you. If you, you think otherwise, he's, it's, not a, it's not a new revelation. It's an uncovering of your contrariness to... If you don't think this way, you're being confronted with it. Yeah. God will confront you with that. Yeah, He will reveal. And if you're His, that should bring you great hope. So if we're wondering, like, oh, what if I'm wrong and I don't know, He's going to reveal it to us. That should bring us great hope. Even, even though it might be hard and it might sting. <laughs> yeah. Which it often does. It's, it should bring us great hope to know that He is going to reveal the ugly in us. Yeah. Change us. It's not leaving us there. Yes. Some of that is that we are true sons, therefore he does discipline us. Even though it's hard, yes. there is still hope. Yes. Spare the rod, spoil the child. He's not going to spare the rod. Yeah, discipline isn't necessarily because God's angry. It's We're being disciplined because he loves us. Yes. So to reach our children, discipline <clears throat> Yes. And for and just like Patrick was saying in his sermon, forgiveness doesn't necessitate, necessitate lack of consequence. So there's still going to be discipline, even if there is forgiveness. All right, let's uh, pick back up here in verse 17. If somebody would read 17 through 19 for us. 17 through 19. Brethren, join in, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who sets their minds on earthly things. Join in imitating me. Can you say that to others? 
Paul is, though imperfectly, dedicating his life to living up to the knowledge that he's obtained to this point. He's straining forward, though imperfectly, but he is straining forward nonetheless. He's pressing on toward the goal. He's repenting when God reveals his sin. And as I said at the beginning of the lesson and what we, said, and we, what we studied last week, his entire ministry's goal is to lead others to become better imitators of Christ. And because he's living that way, he can say, join in imitating me. How do you imitate someone? What's happening? What do you have to do? Yes. Close observation. You have to know them. You have to agree with them. Yes. Yes, this idea of close observation, great attention to detail, and then obviously action. Later in chapter 4, verse 9, he reiterates this point. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Our Christian life is not a solo mission. We're not, by God's design, to live our Christian lives. We are, by God's design, to live our lives alongside other believers, not alone. We're to imitate the Word of God as we understand it. We're to imitate Christ, and we're to imitate others who imitate the Word and Christ. So how do we choose who to imitate? How do we know? Whoever is leading the way in Christ, in other words, are they they manifesting the the love of Christ uh, the life of Christ in your lives. That's who we're to follow. Yes. Yes, we have to pay attention and observe. Do they walk according to the Word and the examples contained in it? Close observation and attention to detail are important. Paul says, look at verses 18 and 19 again. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So the careful attention to detail is exactly like Sam described, is that the walk of others, how they act, what they do, and how that compares to the Word of God. Paul says some walk like Christ. Their mind is like Christ. Their actions reflect Christ. They are but a mirror reflecting Christ. But some walk as enemies of Christ. They stand in opposition to the cross and to its power. The first part there says that the God, their God is their belly. Is food a problem for you? Not just food. Is there something that you can't live without? You've got to have it. That's a problem. And then he says, they glory in their shame. Everybody know what month this is? What so many in the world are celebrating right now? 
It's Pride Month. And the Scripture says that they're glorying in their shame. They're boasting in their shame. They're boasting in their sin. Uh, if you all would turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of you know this, but some of you may not. The last two presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention have both said that the Bible whispers about sexual immorality. It whispers. But I'll bet you I could find no more than a hundred passages in Scripture that denounce sexual immorality. Somebody would continue reading for me right there in 1 Corinthians 6 and read verses 12 through 20. Thank you, Brandon. So we flip over back over to Philippians um, at the end of verse 19. We can go back there. And so these people that have their God as their belly and their glory and their shame, these people that practice all of these abominations against their own bodies, verse 19 at the end says, have their minds set on earthly things. So these are just people who walk as citizens of this world. A world who has a fallen prince whom they imitate very well. They seek immediate pleasure, immediate happiness, and he, in immediate cases, that prince, gives it to him. They have their best life now. Now is great for them, but eternity will be hell. So are there things in your life that you don't 
that you do that reflect a heart and a mind that's set on earthly pleasures and happiness? Are there things in your life that you do now that reflect a heart and mind set on earthly pleasures and happiness? Take a long, deep look at yourselves, your motives, the things you do. Do they reflect a mind set on earthly things? Or do they reflect the stature of a citizen of heaven? Any comments or questions, additions? All right, if somebody would read our last section, uh, verses chapter 3, verses 20, and then also include chapter 4, verse 1, 320 through 4, 1. So what are the implications of citizenship? If it's helpful, you can think about your citizenship as a Texan. John, your bumper sticker says, Native Texan. What does that mean? What does that identity reveal about you? Born and raised in Texas. When you tell people you're a Texan, what does that mean? What, what do they think? What do they what do they conclude? We draw all kinds of conclusions about people when they tell us where they're from. What does our identity in Christ reveal? What does it imply? What conclusions should people draw? Those are definitely things that people should observe in our lives. Also, we're different so far. What are the privileges of the citizenship of heaven? What, what privileges do we enjoy as citizens? Direct access to the Father, the Son. Forgiveness. 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 Forg
asking. Yes. We have a Savior who loved us even when we hated Him. It's a privilege. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit that can love Him and love others like He loved us. Though we sin, He'll never leave us or forsake us. That's a privilege. He'll never revoke our citizenship. Though yet not in our heavenly city, we exist in this outpost, the church, who is under the protection and leadership of that city and its leader, Christ. We live with the promise that one day from that heavenly city, Christ will descend and complete the redemption of His people. He'll renew us, He'll remake us, He'll redeem us. He'll take away our earthly body and give us a glorious body, Paul says. All of this is going to be done because we're citizens of heaven. All of this is being done and will be completed, Paul says, by the power that created and holds the universe together and causes everything to be in submission to Christ. So we looked at identity, we looked at the privileges of citizenship of heaven. What are the requirements of a citizen of heaven? We have requirements as citizens of uh, the states, the municipalities, the country we live in. What are the requirements of the citizens of heaven? Yes. We're to have the mind of Christ. Yes. Several things we've discussed in our time here over the last several weeks. Glorifying, serving, and enjoying God in our catechism. Growing in a relationship with God. Dying to self through continual and specific repentance. Loving and serving our neighbors, the cultural mandate, the Great Commission, raising godly families. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. Paul says, Therefore, brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. This is just another summons by Paul to steadfast unity right on the heels of Paul's declaration of the heavenly hope we have and right before he's going to give a very strong exhortation. If you remember in Philippians 1.27 he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And 1 Corinthians 16.13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So up to this point in the book of Philippians, we've seen some disunity among the church. There was some disunity in the church at Philippi. And next week's section we're going to see as well. 
But Paul is nonetheless spurring them on to be unified in one spirit with one mind, pressing on, striving forward together with heaven in mind and Christ as our Lord. In conclusion, I'd like to leave you with several questions to ponder. Do you consider that there is little room for you now to grow in Christ? Or much room to grow in Christ? Do you study God's Word so that it will change you into a more perfect image of Christ? Or just to check it off a list? Do you act maturely in walking humbly in all that you say and do? Do you continually hold fast to the truths found in God's Word? Do you repent when you don't? Do you walk in a manner worthy of others imitating you because you are imitating Christ? Is your belly your God? Is your daily goal to please yourself in many ways? Or to enjoy God and serve Him in many ways? Do you live as a citizen of heaven or as a citizen of earth? Are you making every effort to stand firm in the Lord and be in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church? Let's pray.